What's up? This is episode 130, Topical Zoom. Today we are talking about products, communities and games. Yeah, really. Let's do it. 1, 2, 3, go! Welcome to the Design Your Thinking Podcast, a show where we think, learn and explore the product mindset so you can design better products every day. And now your host, Karthik. Hey there, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining me again today on the Designer Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Karthik, and today we are doing a topical Zoom episode. Well, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time and this episode happens to be your first episode, let me quickly give you an introduction to what you can really get out of these series of episodes. In the topical Zoom series, we typically take a topic and dive deeper into it with a with typically a guest. So today is one such and I'm actually super excited to be introducing you to somebody I came across who happens to have a very solid understanding of not just design and products but also about the internet and community building on the internet. Yes, that's a book she had written long long back. It the titled Community Building for the Web. And I was looking for resources on community building as I was trying to build the community around designer thinking early on and yes, today we are getting to speak to her. And before that, if you're somebody who's listening to this show for the first time and this episode happens to be your first episode, let me give you a couple of areas that you probably want to go and check out. One, head over to designyourthinking.com/insider. That's the place I want you to go to. Type in your first name and your email address and get all the goodies. Yes, that's the first thing I want you to do. Second, earmark this link, designyourthinking.com/episode130. Yes, that's designyourthinking.com/episode130. Once you're done listening to this episode, just head over to that link, type that in your browser. It'll take you right to the show notes where you can get all the links and the books or whatever that we discussed during this show. And of course, if you want to connect with our guest, just head over there. All right, let's jump right into the show. And before that, let me quickly give you an introduction to our guest today. Our guest helps entrepreneurs and innovators 10x their product market fit with game thinking. Named by Fortune as one of the 10 most influential women in games, she is a world-renowned social game designer, community architect, and startup coach. Her design credits include Rock Band, The Sims, eBay, Netflix, Covet Fashion, Indiegogo, NewYorkTimes.com, Ultima Online, Happify, Play, and numerous startups. She pioneered the idea of applying game design to digital services and is well known for her 2000 book community building on the web she holds a phd in behavioral neuroscience from the university of washington and is an adjunct game design professor at usc school of cinematic arts let's welcome amy jo kim amy jo welcome to the show thank you so much for joining us today it's great to be here awesome amy jo 
your LinkedIn timeline looks so interesting and I've told this to you before. Could you quickly talk about your journey from designing interfaces at Sun Microsystems to designing communities and games to not what you're doing now, which is helping startups and entrepreneurs 10x their product market fit? How did this journey come about? Could you probably give us a quick whirlwind tour? Sure. So um, when I went to school, my undergraduate degree is in experimental psychology. So I got that background. And I really fell in love with neuroscience. So I went to grad school in behavioral neuroscience, intending to be a white lab coat scientist. Mm -hmm. Uh, That got derailed when I realized that you have to kill animals to be a neuroscientist. And I had a real moral crisis with that because that that bothered me. So I turned to computers and got very into computer simulations. I put myself through grad school designing uh, computer simulations and experimental uh, data manipulation for uh, neuroscience labs. The labs that I had been working in, I actually built computer programs for. Mm-hmm. And that got me a job at Sun Microsystems after I did my uh, dissertation research at NASA in their human factors department. Mm-hmm. And at Sun, I really learned how to do large-scale client-server engineering. And I rose up after working there five years to be the lead UX person of a 20-person team that was doing multimedia databases. So that was my background. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Sun, I got an amazing job at the Advanced Products Lab for Paramount Communications, which owned Paramount Film and many other properties. And I got to do prototypes of what the top brands at Paramount would, uh, how they could use new technologies that were emerging out of Silicon Valley. So then Paramount merged with Viacom. Viacom bought Paramount. Mm -hmm. So I worked with the Star Trek team. I worked with Entertainment Tonight, Nickelodeon, MTV, on some of their very earliest internet and AOL Uh, properties. And that experience taught me, one, how to be both a producer and a designer, and -hmm. also how to deal with and communicate with media executives, which is its whole own uh, knowledge set. Mm -hmm. Then uh, I had a, a pivot because Viacom moved our lab to New York, and they gave me a very sweet relocation offer which I turned down and I launched my own company at that time Hmm. to do online social products and which is really what I'm still doing. Mm -hmm. My first uh, specialty was community at the time. This was in the mid nineties, mid and late nineties community was big and it was really just starting to emerge as something that could be built and monetized was emerging from the mailing lists and you know bulletin boards that I was so accustomed to mm-hmm. from working at Sun Microsystems turning into websites and other products so i put up a shingle and started helping companies media companies startups tech companies publishing companies help them have an internet presence and have a social product, have a community around their internet presence. Mm -hmm. I also had the amazing uh, opportunity at that time during those years, the late 90s, to also work with games. I was on the early design team for Ultima Online and for The Sims Mm -hmm. and for Rock Band. And all of that, and I also was the original social systems designer on eBay. 
I help them tighten up their reputation system and launch their core social systems like the about me profiles and the um, power seller program, the tiered power seller program. So that's where I cut my teeth on product design, system design, and in particular social systems. Hmm. Then I wrote a book that was published in 2000 called Community Building on the Web that had nine design principles in it was and it was really sharing with the world what I had learned about what works, what doesn't work, mm-hmm. and how to avoid painting yourself into a corner right. if you're building any kind of online community. That book became a cult hit and amazingly, what is it, 17 years later now, mm-hmm. it's still used. It's out of print, but it's available as a PDF. And it's still used. I still get email from people that read it and say, wow, the examples are out of date, but those principles are timeless and they really helped me build and run a successful community. So from from that point, after I published that book, I did more and more work in the gaming industry, working with Rock Band. That was, I think that continued on, Mm -hmm. working with other properties with Harmonix working with Covet Fashion, working on a number of mobile games that um, for uh, Digital Chocolate and Disney, did a bunch of work for Disney, mm-hmm. and continued to develop uh, the social systems design, but really moved more toward what the aspects that make games compelling. So one of the mm-hmm. things that I've been fascinated with ever since I first worked on Rock Band and Ultima Online was the overlap of social systems with long-term engagement in games. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many people that think that games drive short-term engagement, uh, especially people that have built, say, a free-to-play game or um, you know an adver game, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But games that I worked on, Rock Band, The Sims, Covet Fashion. These are evergreen games that drove very long-term engagement for many months and even years. And all of them had core social systems that were fundamentally driving it. So what Mm -hmm. drives those games to long-term engagement is really the social and community aspects blended with the gaming. So I developed uh, a system and a set of templates and a learning architecture for how to translate that kind of long-term engagement into product design hmm. for products, for services, and also for games. Right. And that's really what I've been working on since then. I call that game thinking. And as you know, Karthik, because you were part of it, um, I've recently started to be more public with this. This is a system that I've used privately with my clients to great effect. Mm-hmm. And now I've become more public with it and I'm running public workshops. And in fact, I have one coming up next week in Malaysia, coming to Kuala Lumpur for the first time. And I also was in India and in Singapore last year sharing this game thinking framework so that product designers worldwide would be able to have a step-by-step system for harnessing the deep and lasting power that you can get through social games. Wow. That's an interesting transition that you described from working at Paramount to uh, later on at Sun Microsystems and how you transitioned from those days into games, game design, and how you're using that to help startups today. We'll 
get to game thinking uh, in the later part of this conversation, Amy Jo. But before that, I want to get your perspective on something, something that I can't ask just anybody because you kind of have worked across the different generations, so to speak, from the 80s to 90s to 2000s, and now it's 2017. So how have you seen your perspectives on products and design change from the time you started till date? That's a great question. Well, things have changed uh, in tech. Mm. So when I started in tech, there were, <clears throat> first of all, culturally, uh, the World Wide Web hadn't launched. So one of right. the big inflection points that changed things was the launch of the World Wide Web. I've been on the internet you know, since the 80s when I was in grad school. Mm-hmm. But uh, most people weren't on the internet. Most people didn't have email. Most people didn't understand how to re- you know, get information or share information online. And what's happened since then is much of the world has come online. Mm -hmm. So we have this critical mass of people. They know how to use basic tools. uh, And the the, uh, impact of the World Wide Web and now social products. So first it was, you know, email, everybody getting an email. So I could email my mom Mm -hmm. and my grandma and I can email you across the world and it's easy. Then we had the you know social systems like MySpace and Friendster and then Facebook, which really overtook everything. So Facebook has really changed the game because people understand that the web can be social. Right. They also understand that you can reveal too much. So people are now aware of and somewhat cautious about what they reveal about their digital footprint that mm-hmm. that gets left across these sites. Um, so just the the mass of people coming online, country to country, the U.S. and now India and China and Europe and you know South America. So a big thing that's changed is that all these people being online and getting comfortable with virtual online communication and tools means one, my business has become far more international. Mm-hmm. I was doing business with. Square Enix in say 2002, 2003, they're a Japanese game company and we would share files and communicate. Now, uh, my business, my coaching business, game design coaching and Mm -hmm. game thinking coaching, I have clients for the last five years, I've had clients all over the world. My business is 70% overseas. Mm -hmm. I currently have clients in Asia and in Europe and in Australia and it's I just use all these tools and they're comfortable with the tools. You and I are talking right now from two different continents on Skype and it's clear as a bell and we both know how to use that. So just that familiarity with and comfort with these online social tools means that people can collaborate and connect and do work with and gain empathy for people in other countries, people in other time zones. And that's had a huge impact. The other thing that's happened, in particular the last few years, that's transformed my business and the kind of clients I can take is the advent of um, off-the-shelf AI algorithms and huge data sets. Mm -hmm. So part of what's also happened in the last few years as people come online 
and start to you know collect data and people start to offer data is that we now have these huge data sets that are accessible and we also have commodity algorithms to make meaning out of those data sets with machine learning etc and that enables a whole new class of services you know gaming has been leading the way so people are all excited about bots now i've been working with what we call npcs non-player characters which are bots mm-hmm. since you know the since 2000 when i was working with ultima online that was even earlier i started working with them in 1997 and so gaming has been leading the way with developing bots for many 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 years but now we've got mainstream bots we've got everybody experimenting with how to make bots and figuring out that making a smart bot is not that easy etc so um there's much more there's much smarter systems because of these changes with big data and algorithms there's uh much more pervasive access there's mm-hmm. much more international exchanges of ideas etc going on and what I find is that the clients that come to me are more sophisticated and they have access to more uh, to a lot more technology and more sophisticated technology. Mm-hmm. So the work that we're able we're able to get our work done much faster. Right. Another big change that's happened is the whole lean startup and agile movement, mm-hmm. which has brought it iterative, prototype driven, you know, scientific testing to software development. So for instance, I can remember back when I worked at Sun, I was one of the very early UI people and I was part of a movement at Sun of folks that were doing UI and UX. And I don't even remember what we called it, but there was maybe 20 or 30 or 40 of us that were really on the cutting edge. And I had mentors within Sun that were further ahead than me, but the management hadn't caught up with it yet. I remember in particular, Mm -hmm. When I got promoted to be the head of UX and, you know, that meant there were 20 engineers for our group and there were about 20 engineers I was overseeing and our job was to build these database interfaces for a multimedia database. So we built the interfaces and I set up UX testing. I set up, you know, walkthroughs and, uh, you know, I arranged for some people who represented our target market to test the UX, mm-hmm. got the feedback found out there were some confusing things, fed it back to the group so we could iterate, Mm -hmm. all of which is completely standard practice now. My manager gave me a bad review that year, and I had never gotten a bad review before. I was a bit of a superstar. And my manager, who was a longtime engineer, Mm -hmm. gave me a bad review because he said, you should have been able to get it right the first time in the requirements doc. Good UX means designing it up front and you shouldn't need testing. Now this is a smart guy, okay? Mm-hmm. He just didn't know. It wasn't you know, he was all about he was a software engineer. It was all about getting the requirements right, right. so that you could execute on it with engineering. Waterfall, right? That's what we call waterfall. Mm-hmm. So it was classic waterfall. And I was dismayed by getting the bad review, but I knew in my heart of hearts what I was doing was smart and right. So I basically left and I went to Paramount and got to do what I was doing, you know, with the pedal to the metal and got more responsibility than I was quite sure I knew what to deal with. But then I leveled up. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the other big things that's changed is that most people at least know about if they don't practice 
this, what we call design thinking, lean mm -hmm. startup, agile, it's all very similar. Now with agile, a lot of people, they understand how to build software quickly, but we're still struggling as a community with knowing the right thing to build. Like, okay, we can build this quickly, but are we building the right thing? That's supposed to be what Lean Startup is about. That's supposed to be what design thinking is about. Right. And I've taken all of that and added a layer of game thinking to it. And that's really what game thinking is. Building the right thing, iterating on your idea, testing your idea, knowing that it's good to be wrong or as early as possible. And doing all of that with an eye toward building long-term engagement from the ground up, which is the part that comes from games. Nice. I really like the way you described the evolution here. So, Emijo, a question I have, though, in the same context is you wrote this book, which is Community Building for the Web, and it came out in the year 2000. And in that book, you covered a bunch of topics and it's still relevant. People are buying the book today. So how much of the book you think is relevant to today's Internet and why do you think it's still relevant? Well, all of them. <laughs> I, so I worked hard to write timeless principles of community building. And a lot of the research I did for that book came out of, well, I definitely did research for the book with digital systems. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the research for the book came out of studying and interviewing people in offline systems, you know, religious leaders, uh, community builders who built um, you know, boys and girls clubs, people that build community in the real world. I was mm. looking for the overlap between that and digital. So the principles, all of them still apply. Let me talk about a few that are so fundamental that everybody needs. The very first chapter is called purpose. Mm. And that is absolutely relevant. Um, here's in a nutshell, here's the punchline. Communities that work and that last have a clear purpose. If you bring people together just for the sake of bringing them together and say, hey, everybody, let's all get together and have a community. Well, what's this community about? I don't know. Let's just get together. It will disintegrate. You will, you will get the people that yell the loudest and talk the loudest. They will take over. Right. So the clearer the purpose of the community, and, the, and that goes to like your, you know, your onboarding, which is people's first experience. What are, what's the code of conduct? How do you learn what the purpose is? Mm -hmm. The first few posts that you see, the first person who interacts with you. Right. What does all of that tell you about the purpose of the community? Um, community, for instance, there's a thriving community that I was just talking to my friend Gina Bianchini about. She runs Mighty Networks. She's a mm -hmm. longtime friend and client. And in fact, that book got me a gig with Gina, who was at the time um, running Neem. Mm -hmm. So purpose, uh, she, Nina, Gina runs Mighty Networks, and she was telling me about some of the really successful breakout communities that they're seeing rapid growth. One of them is a community for people that have MS, you know, multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. And it's really for sharing resources, sharing this helped me and this didn't et cetera, et cetera. Now that's a really, really clear purpose. And there, no wonder it's growing. Mm -hmm. People, you know, people, it's really specific. It's for people that have that or that have a loved one who has that in order to manage, to share information and support resources, et cetera, around managing that degenerative disease. So that's great. You know, I have worked on dozens and dozens and dozens of communities and I've seen some break out and I've seen some fail. Mm -hmm. 
the ones that work have a clear shared purpose. So that one is as timeless as ever. And the ones that work also tend to have some form of, uh, no, you know, aggregated knowledge about people. It can be pro in a profile. It can be reputation. It can be, you know, ratings of content they've shared, et cetera, et cetera. But another thing that makes community work is some way of identifying who's been here for a while, hmm. who are the elders versus who are the newbies. You know, on Twitter, we have like the egg avatar, right? That's right. somebody who's a newbie and et cetera, et cetera. And you can see from someone's basic Twitter stats, have they been here a while? Have they shared? You know, do they have followers, et cetera? All of that tells you something about how to contextualize someone's responses. So that's another thing that's almost so obvious you could miss it. But there's a lot of communities that don't have that. And they're the worst for it because when somebody says something, you don't really know how to put it into context. So some mechanism, some structure to, to put it into context. In the real world, sometimes there's you know uh, clothing that someone has or a special pin that someone has saying they're a mentor. If you go to a conference, certain people have mentor or leader or speaker on their badge. That tells you something right. about how to contextualize their experience. Some people have, I've been at this conference five years. I remember going to SIGGRAPH and seeing one of my friends, they had like five ribbons hanging off their badge, 10 year veteran, speaker, mentor, blah, blah, blah. Those are the sorts of things that make a community richer. And that also leads into probably the most cited and copied and referenced chart from my community building book, which is the membership life cycle. Mm -hmm. The membership life cycle is something that is timeless. You see it in offline communities. You see it in online communities. And it's really the, the stages that an individual goes through as they get deeper and deeper and deeper into engaging in a community. The first stage is visitor when you're not a member. You're mm -hmm. a visitor. You're checking it out, right? The next stage is newbie. You've just become a member. You've just decided to get involved. And now you're learning the ropes. And you're starting to learn, how can I get value from this? What do I need to learn to get value? You know, what are, what are, what are the norms here? Right. How can I find the interesting people, et cetera? Then there's a regular. A regular has learned the ropes. They found the interesting people. And they're coming back regularly, mm -hmm. right? This is the day 21, the day 30 experience. Mm -hmm. Then there's leaders, people that have a leadership role, people that you know, become a moderator, become a game master, become, you know, help behind the scenes, uh, run a thread, launch a subgroup. Those are all ways. For instance, let's say you're, you, Facebook is a great example. You start to use Facebook, you get to know Facebook, you build up your friend network, then you maybe join some groups, mm -hmm. then you start a group of your own. Now you're a leader. You've just emerged into being a leader, okay? Right. And then there's elders. Elders are the people that often want to leave, but they stick around because it's where all their friends are. Mm -hmm. And not every community retains their elders, but the ones that do are much better for it, and they give them a special role. Elders are the storytellers, mm -hmm. the holders of the history. People can merge, go through leaders to become elders. And those are the stages that community participants can go through. Not everybody goes through all those stages. There's right. drop-off at every stage. Some people drop off after newbie experience. Some people become a regular, but never become a leader. 
Some people mm-hmm. become a leader and don't become an elder. So, and those stages, they're so timeless and so simple that many people have used those and referenced those. And in my game thinking work, as you know, I've translated those into game language, which right. is visitor, newbie, yeah. regular, and master. So the thing about game thinking and the thing that is the bridge between community development and game thinking is this idea that in game thinking, you're engaging your customers on a path to mastery. Mm -hmm. You've heard of customer journeys. Customer journeys are very common now. And there's many great, you know, customer journey uh, frameworks. And those are usually talking about the buying journey, the purchasing journey, et cetera, which is very important. But if you reframe that and you say, that's great, not going to throw that out. But if you want to build long-term engagement, you need some form of skill building, some form of Mm -hmm. learning. People need to get better at something that they care about, the thing they're there to get better at. And that, if you frame that as a journey to mastery, and you say, I'm going to take my customer on a journey to mastery, mastering what they care about at each stage, Mm -hmm. at the beginner stage, the regular stage, and the mastery stage, new things for them to do, new frontiers, new challenges, new features, new systems, new roles for them to play. Mm -hmm. I'm going to open those up as my customer is ready for them, as my customer gets better. That's a journey to mastery. And that journey to mastery can happen in a community. You need to master the basics of a group before you start your own, for example. Okay. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that is the key that is unlocked long-term engagement for many of my clients that have gone on to success. And that's something we can certainly talk about more. And it's that journey to mastery that really connects product design to what it is about game design that drives long-term engagement versus short-term fun. Right. I mean, in fact, that that was the question I uh, I had in my mind. If my listeners probably are, are thinking, how would this translate? How could I take something like this and apply it to an online product? So, is I mean, how, do, how to begin? How does one go about identifying these different roles if they already have an online product? <sighs> Well, if you already have an online product, uh, you may want, and you say, well, you know, I have churn, I want to have less churn. You don't so much identify the roles as you identify what it is that people are there to get better at. So the first thing always starts with understanding who your customer is Mm -hmm. and what's the product promise or the brand promise that you're offering them to get better at. And once you understand that, you then say, okay, well, What is it they need to learn or practice in order to get better at that within my product? So let's take Slack as an example. A lot Mm -hmm. of people are familiar with Slack. So what are these roles in Slack? The visitor role is, hey, how do you hear about Slack? Many people hear about Slack from a friend. I personally heard about it from a friend. What about you? Mm -hmm. How did you learn about Slack? Did you learn about it from a friend? Yeah. That's social discovery. Okay. And that's much more common in games than in products. So right off the bat, social discovery was Slack, okay? Mm -hmm. Onboarding. What is the onboarding that Slack offers? Slack's onboarding is where you, how do you learn the ropes? Mm -hmm. You interact with a friendly, helpful bot, Slack bot. What does Slack do with onboarding? Do they just throw you into a channel with your colleagues? No. They teach you the ropes 
in a single player environment with a friendly, helpful bot, Slack bot. Mm -hmm. They teach you just enough to get going, which is good practice. Mm -hmm. And then they also teach you how to get help when you have another question. And then they put you into the channel with your colleagues or your friends. Right. Now, this is straight out of gaming. If you think about uh, console games, think about like, you know, Command and Conquer and all these games. Mm -hmm. How do you learn? You learn in a training level with bots before right. you go out and play with real people. So structurally, that's very similar to a game. Note the lack of points, badges, and leaderboards in the interface. Hmm. There's none of that. By the way, that's not because they don't know about that. The people that built Slack had built a game before that. It's because they're smart enough to know that that's not what makes a good product. It's the right. underlying structure. So the onboarding structure of Slack mm -hmm. is game-like but not gamified. Okay, and just right. it's just really smart design. Right. Now you're in the regular. So now you're you're in Slack and you start to get started and you interact with people and you see, oh, people are using emojis. How do I learn that? You can go look at the help. You can you ask your friend, how did you use that emoji? They tell you. You learn how to do that. And then you see that Trello's been integrated into your site. Oh, how how's that? And then you learn about how you integrate into a Slack channel. Mm -hmm. So little by little and then you start to get more notifications than you can handle. So then Slackbot suggests you customize your notifications. You go and you customize your notifications. For me, I just, just get notified when there's a DM, a direct message. I don't get notified with all the other chit-chat. Great. Mm. What are you doing? Little by little, as a regular, as someone using it day after day after day, that is built around customizing it to work really well for you. Right. So Slack's regular experience is about using it, but also tweaking and customizing it. It's highly customizable. It's built to be that way. You get reminded about it. You learn about it socially from your friends. Now, when you do that, you're getting better, not just at customizing Slack, customizing the tool. You're mm -hmm. getting better at working with your team productively, which is what you're there to do. So right. Slack, by, by through making you be able to easily customize the tool, it's making you better at the thing you're there to do, which is get work done with your team. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens for the mastery stage? Okay, we've gone through discovery, onboarding, and habit building. So habit building is just using it and then getting your notifications just right. So you're going back there. And in fact, you don't even need the notifications to check back in Slack. FOMO will make you check back. Right. When everything that your team's doing is in Slack, so it's visible and searchable, you just want to be there so you don't miss a thing. Mm -hmm. And then mastery. What's mastery look like? Well, once you start your own Slack channel, you use someone else's channel for where I like, mm -hmm, I'm going to start my own. Now you're stepping into mastery. Mm -hmm. And then you start to customize that. You start to do the integrations in it. Now you're getting more and more into mastery. And let's say you then say, I think I'm going to build my own bot, my own welcome bot, because mm -hmm. I want to do that. Boom, boom, boom. Slack's whole through line is built around more and more customization. That's fundamentally about getting better at getting work done with remote teams. Beautiful. Uh, in fact, as you were uh, trying describing that, uh, there was one thing that I did want to or you know you to talk about the difference that even any, every time you you know you end up talking about game, the word game kind of makes people think about the badges and the scorecards and all these things.
All right, I hope you've been listening to this conversation really, really carefully, and I really hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed asking Amy Jo all those questions. Now, like I said, I bumped into Amy Jo's book when I actually was looking out for resources on community building, and when I looked up Amazon for books on community building, this was one of the first few books, and I really liked the way she had written the book. The first thing that stood out is the thought she had given to think about how she should be splitting the chapters because I could clearly see that she had gone through and done a bunch of research before she wrote that book. The second thing is what Amy Jo describes during this conversation about the journey to mastery where somebody who gets into a community grows with the community. They start as a newbie but then they slowly try to get find and get ways to involve themselves and they become they take up this journey to becoming masters and then leaders and elders, as she calls them. Now, this is the same principle she uses in her game thinking approach as well. We'll talk about that in the episode to follow, which is episode 131. And in the meantime, I'd like you to head over to designyourthinking.com slash episode 130 and access the show notes for this episode. You can find the links to connect with Amy Jo or look up her book or find out more about game thinking. That's all I have for today. I really think this was a very useful conversation. At least for me, I found this very useful and I really hope you find it useful as well. Just don't forget to stay tuned to the next episode. You can do that by heading over to designyourthinking.com slash insider. Just do that and you'll be asked to enter your first name and your email address. Do that and you can sit back and relax because every Sunday I send you both the episodes so that you can listen to it whenever you get the time. All right? Just head over to designyourthinking.com slash iTunes if you have a couple of minutes and leave me a rating and review. I really, really appreciate you doing this for me because I really want more people just like you to get access to these wonderful conversations and gain something out of it. Don't you think so? So just head over to designyourthinking.com slash iTunes. Type that in your browser. You'll be redirected to iTunes no matter you're accessing it from your Mac or from your phone, whatever it is, it'll redirect you to iTunes. Once you're there, you'll see the rating and review tab. Click on that. You will find a place where you can type in your review and right about that, you will see a few stars. I would love to see you clicking the fifth one. Yeah, that's the five-star rating. I would appreciate if you did that, but it's okay. Leave me what you think the show deserves. Thank you so much. Till I see you in the next episode, stay tuned, stay inspired. Keep pushing, my friend. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Design Your Thinking podcast. Subscribe to our newsletter at www.designyourthinking.com. 